All right, then let's pray. Dear God, we are just, um, we're blessed to have this chance to gather in your name as a group of believers who want to learn more about what you have to say to our lives. And so we pray, God, first and foremost, that you would be glorified um, as we're giving honor to your word tonight. We pray that you would be exalted. But we pray also that you would um, just speak to each of our hearts. God, we want to grow. We want to know you more. And so we just pray for, um, for your Holy Spirit to come and uh, just reveal your truth to each one of us tonight. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So Wednesday nights, uh, we are reading as a church through the Bible in a year, right? And we've said this before. If you're not on the plan and you'd like to be, there's pamphlets in the back. You can pick it up to, what's today, May 19th, and start right there and go through the Bible. And um, so Wednesday nights, we're doing a recap of where we've been in the past week, um, kind of picking a, sp- a specific chunk out of where we were to uh, try and glean some more specific applications. So uh, this past week, we were in the book of Second Chronicles, chapters 5 through 30. Next week, we're going to be in Second Chronicles, chapter 31, all the way then through the book of Ezra into the book of Nehemiah. And... Um, it's really some, it's just some fantastic portions of Scripture. And Ezra and Nehemiah are just, um, they both have sections that can be a little hard to read, but they also both just have incredibly rich portions um, that have a ton of application for our lives. And so um, I'm excited about that. But for tonight, um, just to kind of keep in mind the overview, where we're at in the Bible right now, we're in the Old Testament, we're reading through the history of the nation of Israel. And um, specifically, as the nation of Israel came into the promised land that the Lord had given them, uh, they had a bunch of judges, then they had the kings, you had Saul, you had David, you had Solomon. And then after Solomon, the kingdom divided into two kingdoms. You had the northern kingdom, which was most of the tribes of Israel, and the southern kingdom, which became known as the nation of Judah. And so... um, you know, we talked about in different parts of the scripture, spend more time on the kings of Israel, but Second Chronic, First and Second Chronicles are really just a history of the kings of Judah. And so we get a chance to see um, the part of the nation that didn't really follow the Lord very well, but followed the Lord a little better than their northern brothers and sisters. And there's just a ton of direct application that we can get from each one of these. Um, and bear in mind also, as we're reading through this, I was thinking about this earlier in the week. Um, you know, in the New Testament, Paul tells us that the things that happened to Israel happened as an example. And so we are really told and given permission to, as we're reading the, the Old Testament, to take life lessons from it, right? But we're not taking them as parables or as fables, right? We glean life lessons, and we're going to be doing that tonight. We're going to say, look, this person did this, and then this person did this. And here's an example where the Lord was honored. Here's an example where the Lord had to deal with the situation. But don't forget that we're talking about real people, right? And this isn't some, you know, imaginative uh, story. This isn't a myth. And it's, it might seem like a subtle detail, but it's a big deal if for no other reason than that, you know, whenever you're talking about a myth, whoever went through the great trial in the myth is a pretend person right? Uh, when the Greeks talk about their myths, well, you know, so-and-so was falling apart, and then Zeus came down and helped them. And that's great, 
except Zeus doesn't come down and help people, right? So there's not a lot of direct application. But as we're reading the Old Testament, we're reading about real people and a real God. And so we get to see this person interacted with their world and with the Lord in a specific way, and the Lord responded like this. And we know that the Lord, the scripture tells us, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So in our situation today, 3,000 years later, we can know that if we obey God in the same way, we can overall expect the same response, right? We can expect the blessing of God, or we can expect the consequences that God will allow. But we get to have a little bit of a sense of where our life is going, right? We get a sense of stability in that to say, you know what? These guys had really hard lives. These guys had, some of them had awfully hard lives, right? Um, but it doesn't change the reality of who God is in their situations, and doesn't change the reality of who God is in our situations. So let's pick it up in Second Chronicles chapter 14. And as we're, you know, again, we said we're going through the kings of Judah, and the kings of Israel were all bad. There was never a godly king once the kingdom split in the northern kingdom of Israel. The kingdom of Judah was kind of, you know, one good, two bad, one good, two bad. And so we're going to pick up and we're going to start reading about this guy named Asa. And Asa, um, his father and his grandfather both had not walked with the Lord at all. Uh, they had both been idolaters. His great-grandfather had walked with the Lord for a while and then drifted pretty far. So this guy's coming from a line where he hasn't had a lot of solid godly influence, right? And so I want us to keep that in mind as we begin to read. So in chapter 14, verse 1, it says, So Abijah slept with his fathers. Abijah was the king at the time. And they buried him in the city of David, and his son Asa became king in his place. The land was undisturbed for ten years during his days. So Chronicles has given us a quick overview. It says, okay, Abijah died. Asa becomes king. Everything's chill for ten years. And now we're going to read what ha what's happening during the ten years and then after the ten years. So during the ten years, verse 2, says, Asa did good and right in the sight of the Lord his God. For he removed the foreign altars and high places, tore down the sacred pillars, cut down the ashram, and commanded Judah to seek the Lord God of their fathers and to observe the law and the commandment. So for a guy who had no godly heritage or no living godly heritage, he's doing pretty good, right? Uh, verse 5, he also removed the high places and the incense altars from all the cities of Judah, and the kingdom was undisturbed under him. So the Lord is bringing, there's some security here, there's some stability, and this guy is serving the Lord and trying to walk with the Lord. He built fortified cities in Judah since the land was undisturbed, okay? When you're at peace, is a decent time to build up your defenses, right? You don't want to build up defenses once the war is here. So Asa is responsible. He's planning ahead. Um, <clears throat> and then verse 7, he says to Judah, let's build these cities and surround them with walls and towers and gates and bars. The land is still ours because we have sought the Lord our God. We have sought him and he has given us rest on every side. So we see this guy coming into his kingdom and he's really, he's doing a pretty fantastic job, right? He's and getting rid of the idols, he's serving the Lord, he's being responsible, he's being practical. And that's a great blend. And so it tells us that the land had rest for 10 years. For 10 years, there was a sense of national security. But, okay, verse 9, chapter 14, verse 9 says, Now Zira the Ethiopian came out against them with an army of a million men. 
and 300 chariots, and he came to Marisha. So Asa does all this great stuff for the Lord, right? All these works, all these, you know, endeavors and these campaigns and all these different things. And as the result, he gets a million-man army coming out against him. Now, I was reading this. It says here that Asa had basically 580,000 soldiers, his maximum army. So, you know, that's like three to five is kind of what those numbers crunch out to. And I was thinking about this morning, you know, three to five would feel a lot different to me than six to ten, right, if I was in the six. And six to ten would feel a lot different than 12 to 20, right? I'm, at least as I'm picturing a scene, you know, in, in a street fight or whatever, which I've never been in a 30-man street fight, but six to ten would be a lot different than 12 to 20, right? And 12 to 20 would probably feel a lot less intimidating than 24 to 40, right? So Asa's out here with 580,000 to a million. That's a lot of loose guys hanging around to stab you in the back, right? That's a huge army. That, I mean, that number hasn't hardly been replicated even in modern warfare, right? I mean, World War II, there were battles pushing two, two and a half, maybe three million men. But for the ancient world, this is a massive engagement. But so what happens? This is the result, this is the end point of all of Asa's faithfulness, right? And does that feel backwards, right? We're going to read uh, either tomorrow's reading or Friday's reading, I forget which. We're going to be reading about Hezekiah. And Hezekiah does a lot of the same stuff. He goes through all the land and he gets rid of all the idols and he helps restore worship. And then there's a verse in there that's one of my favorite verses. And it says, now after these acts of faithfulness, the king of Assyria came up to make war against Hezekiah. And so it's like, after Hezekiah does all this stuff for God, he gets a challenge that's really, it's not fair, right? It's really not. He did all this stuff for the Lord, and now the Lord is letting this stuff happen to him. And here's the thing. That's the way life works, right? Um, We're not promised perfect justice and perfect equality in every action here on earth, right? We know that true justice, true judgment comes later on. But while we're all still down here, things are a little sketchier sometimes, right? But don't be, you know, sometimes it can be really, really discouraging to feel like, man, I've been doing my time for the Lord, and all I got was this, right? And I've been, I've been trying to serve the Lord, and this is all I got out of it, right? But what is, but, but don't lose sight of the fact, well, actually, I'm just going to stop right there. But hold on to that thought, and we'll get back to it in a little bit. So, in verse 10, it says, Now Asa went out to meet him, and they drew up in battle formation in the valley of Zephatha. I do not know if that's how you pronounce that. I just made it up on the spot. At Marisha. Then Asa called to the Lord his God and said, Lord, there is no one beside you to help in the battle between the powerful and those who have no strength. So help us, O Lord our God, for we trust in you and in your name have come against this multitude. O Lord, you are God. Let not man prevail against you. So notice what Asa doesn't do, right? He doesn't obsess over man's strategies. He doesn't obsess over how am I going to pull this off, right? I mean, he was probably thinking through. I mean, he, you know, he did bring his men out. So he's sorting through some practical stuff. But overall, Asa gets there. He says, okay, God, you're the guy in charge when it comes to things like this, right? Because for you, you're the guy who can switch the order of strength. You can make the strong weak and you can make the weak strong. And you can do this for your own credit right? Um, and so we're asking you to grant this to us. Um, 
Help us, O Lord our God, for we trust in you and in your name have come against this multitude. God, we're not just coming against this multitude for our own personal gain. We're coming against this multitude really as a symbol of our confidence in you, right? Um, Asa really, at this point, he's acknowledging that God had made all kinds of promises to the nation of Israel, all kinds of promises to the nation of Judah. And he's saying, God, you have made these promises and not that we're, you know, demanding of them of you right now, but we are asking you humbly to come and defend what you have promised, right? It's not, God, you owe me. It's, God, would you please step into this situation, right? Would you step into our weakness and, and redraw the battle the way you want to? So that's a great model of prayer, right? Uh, praying prayers of fairness is not an effective way to communicate to the Lord, right? Explaining to God where he's wrong or where you deserve something different is really not an effective way to communicate to the Lord. But if you want to pray something effective, I would encourage all of us, go through the word of God and find instances where people prayed, right? And go through in the Old Testament where we can see someone prayed and then the Lord responded. In the New Testament, in all the epistles of Paul, Paul tells different people he's writing to, this is what I've been praying for you right? Write them down. Pray them for people. There is, there is just direct, and then you don't have to get in this whole like, well, I wonder if the Lord knows what I really mean, right? No, just you're praying the word of God, right? So Asa prays this, and then verse 12, it says, so the Lord routed the Ethiopians before Asa and before Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. Asa and the people who were with him pursued them as far as Gerar, and so many Ethiopians fell that they could not recover, for they were shattered before the Lord and before his army. That's what you call victory, right? 580,000 men just defeated a million men so dramatically that the Bible uses the word shattered, right? It doesn't say they beat them. It doesn't say they whooped them. It says they shattered them, right? When you shatter, there's not a lot of pieces left to put together, right? So the, Israel, the, the tribe of Judah, the nation of Judah, has this incredible victory. And it says that there's all kinds of spoil, and there's all these, they get to reap all these benefits of winning this battle. And it really all comes down to the fact that Asa was willing to say, hey God, um, instead of saying, hey God, I've been serving you for 10 years now, remember? Remember that? Right? He says, hey God, we are asking you to just, to do your thing. Right? We're asking you to do what you want to do. And that is what grants the victory. It's not Asa's plans. It's not his strategies. It's not any of that. It's that the Lord steps in because the Lord loves to break into a situation where there's a humble person just seeking him. Right? So then chapter 15, starting in verse 1, it says, Now the Spirit of God came on Azariah, the son of Oded. So this guy is a prophet. And he went out to meet Asa and said to him, Listen to me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you when you are with him. And if you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. For many days Israel was without the true God and without a teaching priest and without law. But in their distress, they turned to the Lord God of Israel and they sought him and he let them find him. In those times, there was no peace to him who went out or to him who came in. For many disturbances afflicted all the inhabitants of the land. Nation was crushed by nation and city by city, for God troubled them with every kind of distress. But you, be strong and do not lose courage, for there is reward for your work. So, I want us to notice a couple things. Okay, so first of all, 
Ace's life overall. He's a faithful guy, and that results in a challenge, right? That's usually how life works. If we are faithful in little things, the Bible says we can then be faithful with much, which means if you're faithful in small obstacles, you will get the privilege of bigger obstacles to be faithful in. And that's not always like super, you know, uh, exciting, but, but it's reality of life. So if you are faithful and you get a bigger challenge, that means that the Lord thinks you're, the Lord thinks this guy's ready for this. Not that he can handle it because he can't, right? He's, he's powerless, but the Lord thinks, you know, between my strength and his complete inability, I think we can pull this off. And so faithfulness often brings challenge, but in the midst of that challenge, dependency on the Lord brings victory. Okay, but notice what happens after the victory. This prophet comes and he says, hey, Asa, keep focus here for a second. The Lord is with you when you're with him. If you are looking for the Lord, you will find him. The Lord, or actually more specifically, the Lord will find you, right? If you are hungering for God, God will come to you, right? No one has ever found God. No one has ever gotten themselves saved. But there have been a lot of people um, there's a lot of us in this room right now who became aware enough to say, I am messed up, to then say, I need God to fix my solution. And then God says, I'm right here. Did you, yeah, you, you want some help? I'm, I'm here. I'm like totally competent. I'm fully, here's my credentials. I can, you know, I'm the man for the job, right? God is there for us if we are looking for him. But if we are insistent that we do not need his help, he, he says, okay, you know what? I'm not, I'm not going to push it. Um, the Lord is super gracious in that regard. The Lord does not force himself on us. But this prophet says, hey, Asa, just keep this in mind, right? If you're looking for the Lord, he is right there. If you're turning away from the Lord, you're probably not going to find him very easily, right? It's, it's just a reality of life that, you know, we can, we can blind ourselves to this sometimes, but we can turn and walk in a direction that we know is bad, and then we wonder why we have a hard time... Um, you know, obtaining the blessings of God, right? When we've left God back here and we're trying to move this way and we say, well, why isn't God coming with me, right? I don't know why God is letting this happen to me. Well, you know, sometimes the why is um, it's really your stupidity and your rebellion that have brought this on yourself. So don't blame God, right? So there's, you know, and sometimes hard things just happen and that's, that's a reality. We, we're talking about that too, right? But if you're seeking the Lord, he's right there. If you are not interested you're probably not going to find him very easily, right? It's not because he's refusing to be there. It's because you told him no, and he won't force that on you. But notice at the end in, of what we just read, in verse 7, the prophet says, But you, be strong and do not lose courage, for there is reward for your work. So Asa was faithful, and then he got a challenge, and then he got a victory. And then the prophet says, Hey, keep going, because there's a reward. Now this is... Now notice the order here. This is right after Asa defeated a major army. This is right after Asa has taken all this plunder and all these spoils. And, in, you know, the nation is just dramatically increased in wealth. It's dramatically increased in um, military prominence, right? Because there's one less competitor. They're one, you know, one guy goes down and you go up. You know, they're up a couple notches on the who's who in ancient, uh, ancient warfare. So... Israel just had all these great things happen, and now this prophet says, hey, if you seek the Lord, there will be a reward. He's talking about something future, right? So it's like in the Lord's eyes, the victory from the Ethiopians 
was not the reward for faithfulness, right? The victory just happened because God wanted to bless them. But what's the reward, right? That's the question for us is what's, you know, if, if the Lord is offering this reward to Asa, and he's saying, be strong and don't lose courage for there's reward in your work. Well, what is that, right? And there's this, and this kind of this question of like, well, what, what, are we, what are we going for, right? What are we pursuing? And Asa, Asa gets it right. Now, okay, you know, spoiler alert or whatever. Asa does really fantastic in the first half of his life. He fades off in the second half, right? He does not finish super well. But, and we could really go into all of that if uh, I run out of things to say before 8 o'clock, we might. But, but Asa, you know, he, does, he doesn't end well. And it's really a tragedy of, you know, in the history of the kings, Asa's one of those guys who it's like, ah, he could have done so much better. But this first half especially, Asa is on fire for the Lord. And there is so much we can glean here. So in verse 8, it says, Now when Asa heard these words and the prophecy which Azariah, the son of Oded, the prophet, spoke, he took courage. So the Lord says, hey, don't lose courage. So Asa took courage. And he removed the abominable idols from all the land of Judah and Benjamin. And from the cities which he had captured in the hill country of Ephraim, he restored the altar of the Lord, which was in front of the porch of the Lord. He gathered all Judah and Benjamin and and those from Ephraim and Manasseh and Simeon who resided with them. For many defected to him from Israel when they saw that the Lord his God was with him. So, so evidently, in 10 years' work, he hadn't gotten everything done, right? But now the Lord says, hey, don't lose courage because there's a reward coming. And he says, okay, let's go, right? This is, it's turbo time. And so all of a sudden he says, no, we're not just like getting rid of them. We're like way getting rid of the idols. To the point now that... Out of those northern tribes of Israel, people start saying, you know what? I think God's with that guy down there. And our leadership is really not serving the Lord at all, right? So we're going to move. And so he gets this influx of believers who want to serve the Lord. There's this really, it, it, it's a sense of national revival that happens in his life. And it says, then they assembled at Jerusalem in the third month, in the 15th year of his reign. So they sacrificed to the Lord that day 700 oxen and 7,000 sheep from the spoil they had brought. They entered into the covenant to seek the Lord God of their fathers with all their heart and soul. And then uh, verse 14, it says, Moreover, they made an oath to the Lord with a loud voice, with shouting, with trumpets, and with horns. And all Judah rejoiced concerning the oath, for they had sworn with their whole heart, and had sought him earnestly, and he had let them find him. So the Lord gave them rest on every side. So the Lord gives us promise. He says, hey, if you seek me, you're going to find me. Don't lose heart because there's a reward coming. <clears throat> so Asa, he takes heart. He takes courage. He goes and he goes through the land and destroys the idols. And what happens? Then all the people come together and say, you know what? We want to rededicate ourselves to the Lord. We want to recall to mind the things he spoke to us in his word. And we want to pledge to abide by them, right? We want to dedicate ourselves to the work of God. And it says that they rejoiced concerning the oath, for they had sworn with their whole heart and had sought him earnestly, and he had let them find him. So I want us to kind of tie this together a little bit here, all right? So the very end of that is they are rejoicing because they made a covenant with the Lord, because they were seeking the Lord, and he let them find him. And they're rejoicing in that, right? And that is a beautiful thing to rejoice in. Right? If we've been saved, 
there should be a sense of rejoicing in our lives, right? If we have understood and believed and received the fact that we are sinners separated from God, and Jesus came to earth, lived as a human, died for our sins, and now by his resurrection to life, the right, his righteousness can totally cover all of our sins so that God sees us as perfect, right? That ought to be cause for rejoicing, right? There shouldn't really be bummed out Christians in the world, right? There's, there are going to be Christians who go through really hard things, and I'm not taken away from that at all. But overall, as Christians, our lives should still be marked by joy because we sense the big picture, right? We know what's coming, which is a world where God makes everything right, where we're redeemed and transformed into who we were really made to be, okay? So there's that reward, and I don't want to lose sight of that because that's very important, right? But there's also this cool concept when it says, they rejoiced because they sought the Lord, and the Lord let them find him. So this prophet tells Asa there's a reward. And the people can recognize that part of that reward is the fact that they sought the Lord and he found them, right? Notice that he doesn't call the situational victory the reward. The Lord does not say, hey, defeating this army is your reward for all of your past faithfulness, right? There's a reward, and it's, it's, you know, it's twofold, right? There's a reward of, hey, there's eternity, but there's also a reward of, hey, right here, right now, you sought me, and I'm right there, right? You were looking for me, and I did the whole, you know, tap you on the shoulder, you bump around and plow into me, right? That's part of the reward. And I think sometimes, um, you know, we said there shouldn't be any bummed out Christians. Sometimes there's almost this sense of like, you know, my reward's in heaven, so life's just going to be like, blah, right? There's this, there's this, you get this perception sometimes that we live as though I'm just going to survive the next 80 years, right? I'm going to just, I'm going to, I'm going to bear up with them. I'm going to put up with them until I die. And then when I die is when I really arrive, right? And that's, you know, that's kind of true, right? There is a reality. Um, you know, all of our bodies uh, wear out, right? We wear out, we burn out, we rust out, whichever one it is, and we die, right? Your engine gets mileage on it. You can only go so far on an engine, right? Some of us are diesel engines, some of us are gas engines, right? But sooner or later, those engines are going to die. And that's, you know, it's just, it's the way it works, right? It's the reality of the curse that our sin that we commit has brought on that consequence. And so there is that glorious privilege of eternity. But in the midst of that, in the here and now, there's still a reward, right? And so for us, we shouldn't, we shouldn't, obsess over our eternal reward to the exclusion of our earthly reward, right? Because the heavenly reward is great, but there's a very real and present earthly reward right here for us. And that is that we get the privilege of having fellowship with the Lord. So just a couple thoughts to kind of maybe help put that in perspective for us. Um, if you turn over to the Gospel of John, John is got more of when Jesus was on earth, John is the book that has the most uh, complete summary of Jesus saying, okay, this is who I am. Right? This is, if you want to know about Jesus, John is where you read because it's where Jesus describes himself. 
And there's a couple things in John. John, if you read, the, one of the most common words in the book of John is sent. Jesus cannot stop talking about the fact that he was sent. And it just, it's there. It's, I think it's in every chapter. I think it's there multiple times in almost every chapter. All right? Jesus keeps talking about, I was sent. Right? Now, what was he sent for? Well, in part, and, you know, the fantastic part is he was sent to redeem us. He was sent to offer us salvation, right? So that we can know and rest in the assurance that when we die, we do get the privilege of being in the presence of God in heaven, right? That's a huge part of why Jesus came. That's really, that is the why, okay? If you want to know what is the gospel, why did Jesus come? It's for that. It's so that we could be saved. But along with that, all right, in John 14, Jesus, as he's, he's preparing to die right before he rises from the dead, and he's talking to his disciples and trying to encourage them because he's going to now, once he raises from the dead, he'll ascend back to heaven. But in chapter 14, verse 16, Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever, that is the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. So Jesus says, listen, I'm going to die. I'm going to come back to life. You're going to be saved. And I'm going to go to heaven. And then once you die, you can come, you will come to heaven with me, right? But in the here and now, I'm, when I get up to heaven, I'm going to ask God the Father and he's going to send the Holy Spirit. He's going to send God down to be with you, to be upon you, to be in you. Right? Now, I don't know how heaven works. I really don't. You know, uh, I don't know if there's ice cream. I don't know if there's puppies. I don't know. All that stuff that people want to know. The only thing really we know about heaven is is there's a description in Revelation that says there's a rainbow that's solid green, which tells us just enough to know that everything we know about light and everything we know about physics and everything we know about pretty much anything that we think we know here on earth is going to be different. So that's really all we know about heaven is that we don't know anything. But it's going to be fantastic, all right? Outside of that, I really don't know what heaven's going to be like. But I'm, I don't think it's a stretch to say that I don't know that we're going to have the same relationship with the Holy Spirit in heaven that we get to have here. Now, it's, you know, we're going to be glorified and it's going to, I'm not downplaying heaven. But right here, right now on earth, in part because we're so broken and messed up, because we're still living in these bodies that are wearing out, the Holy Spirit is actually in us, right? I don't know exactly how it's going to work in heaven. I think it's going to be more of a, like, we're there, he's there kind of a thing, right? And there will be a different level of fellowship. But right now, the Holy Spirit is in us. We get to experience things here on earth that we will not experience in heaven. You know, the Bible talks about marriage is one of those things that is not going to be experienced in heaven, right? And marriage has its own, so I've been told, its own share of struggles and problems and blessings, right? But if you're married, enjoy it now because you won't have it in heaven. Um, for those of us who are single, Meat is something we won't get to have in heaven, right? There will not be steak in heaven, so enjoy it now, right? There are things that are going to be different. And I think one of those is the presence of the Holy Spirit is not just here with us. He's actually dwelling in us. And so to go back to where Asa was at, 
Okay? There's, when the Lord says, there's a reward if you seek me, right? There is a reward. There's a long-term reward, but there's also a short-term reward. And we see that over and over through the scriptures. There's a long-term fulfillment and a short-term fulfillment, right? We keep seeing that in Isaiah on Sundays, right? We get these prophecies, and some of them have not yet come to pass. Some of them came to pass just a couple hundred years after Isaiah died, okay? But for our lives right now, right, we have the promise of resurrection. We have the promise of life and fellowship with God in a way that we can't imagine. But right now, we still have fellowship with God. In John 15, it's either the same page or next page in most of your Bibles, um, verse 1, Jesus says, I'm the true vine, my father's the vine dresser. And he goes on to talk about, you know, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes so that it can bear more fruit. So Jesus says, you know, I'm, if you abide in me, verse 4, he says, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So there's again this sense of, okay, and you know, it's a little bit confusing because Jesus, you know, there's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and they're all totally the same, and they're all totally different. And I don't know how that works. And I'm okay with that because God is smarter than I am. But, so, but Jesus is saying, hey, look, you hang on, you abide in me. You dwell with Jesus, which we can do because the Spirit is in us. So we can dwell in the Spirit, right? You do that and you bear fruit. We get to bear fruit in our lives in a way that we won't once we're in heaven, right? There will become a time when we can no longer give to the poor or feed the hungry or share the gospel, right? There will come a time when certain opportunities will end. And, you know, and don't, again... I'm going to keep saying it. Heaven is fantastic, right? I can't wait to get to heaven, right? Like, when I get a glorified body that does not have sinful temptations, it's going to be just fantastic, right? It's like, I mean, I can't imagine a life where I don't have to wrestle with sin. I can't imagine that, but I can't wait for it, right? It's going to be glorious, but right now, I do have certain opportunities. I have certain gifts and chances and privileges from the Lord that will not last forever. And, and so there's a heavenly reward coming, but there's also a reward right here and now of keeping in mind that thing where the Lord says, if you seek me, I'll be there, right? And so, so I don't want to miss that, right? So, and it's so, but it's so easy, right? It's so easy, like, to get into that sense of, well, I'm saved, so what more do I need to do, right? I'm covered, and now I can just kind of chill, don't sin too bad, don't do too much, you know, come to church once in a while. Uh, you know, there's this whole, there's this whole mood we can get in when we start living with perspective that our only reward comes at the end, Right? Because there is a reward at the end, but there's a reward for each of us right here and now. And so for that, why would we want to miss that, right? The Lord, and it's an all-inclusive invitation. The Lord is opening up that offer to each one of us, right? So we can each say, you know what? I want to seek after the Lord with the knowledge that he will let me find him, right? 
If I seek after the Lord, I'm going to find him, right? If I live life expecting God to move, I will see God move, right? If I show up to church expecting to see God glorified, he's going to be glorified, right? And so often we, we get in this self-focus, you know, and, and I'm as guilty as anybody, right? What is God going to do for me, right? What is, how can I, you know, I've been doing my time, now I need victory in my circumstance, Right? And the Lord would say, you know what? I can give you victory in a circumstance. That's fine. But that's not the reward. Right? So let's not live like that's the reward. Let's not live like fixing our circumstances, like God taking care of the things that we've decided are important to us is the reward. Right? That's a huge blessing. Right? I mean, I know that feeling when, when the Lord just totally steps into an opportunity or steps into a challenge and resolves it or fixes it. And that's fantastic. I love that, right? But that's not the reward. That's the Lord blessing us just because he can, because he likes to. But the reward for each one of us is that we get the privilege of fellowship. In 1 John, this will be the last thing we read for the night. In chapter 3, verse 1, John says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called the children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. John says, hey, you know what? God has made us his children. God has opened the door of salvation to every single human being who chooses, chooses to step through it. And we can all be the children of God. And John says, I don't know what that looks like. Right? John says, I know that when he comes back, we're going to be like him. But that's really it. Right? It's a hope. Right? You don't hope for what you already know. You don't hope for what you've fully experienced. Right? Hope is still out there. And so John says, we have this hope. Right? We have a confidence and hope in the coming of God. And so because of that, everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. So everyone who has that hope lives a life of saying, not did I check the box so I can get in. It's no, I am confidently hoping in the return of Christ. And so with that confidence, with that hope, I want to live for the reward, right? I want to live for the reward that's coming and I want to live for the reward, reward that's right now. And so I want to live life right? I want to step out of my front door every day. I want to come to church expecting God to move. I want to come and worship the Lord like I'm expecting him to be glorified and honored as we're pouring out worship. I want to open up his word like I'm expecting him to speak to me, right? I want to see my interactions with other people as chances to experience that reward by seeking after him. I want to take courage and live that life. I want to walk in that abundant, victorious Christian life that is offered to each and every one of us, right? So, so again, there's a reward coming, right? There is an incredible reward coming. But the Lord is offering each and every one of us a reward right now. And we all have the privilege of walking in that if we choose to, right? So let's not waste that. Right? We all have limited time. 
None of us really know how long. You can guess what your maximum could be, but none of us know how long we have left on earth. So let's not waste it, right? Let's, let's look for that reward, right? Like it says in Hebrews chapter 12, let's lay aside every weight and the sin that ensnares us, right? That tangles us up so easily. And let's run with endurance, looking who? To Jesus, the author and the finisher, right? He'll take care of the finishing. He's doing the authoring right now, right? We can get the whole story, right? Beginning to end if we run with endurance. So, God, we just pray that you would fix our eyes on you. God, we want to learn from the, the life of Asa. God, we want, to, we want to be faithful. We want to seek you first and foremost. We want to uh, glorify you in our lives. God, I pray that you would just draw each and every one of us close to you. I pray that we would recognize that reward that you're offering us um, that we would want to engage our world uh, in a way that brings a reward, that we would want to fellowship with you in a way that brings a reward, that we would want to live like we are expecting you to move in our lives. So God, I just pray that you would do that work. I pray that you would um, fill us up with a hunger for more of you. Please be glorified in our lives and have your way with us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.